From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On today's show, 100 marine scientists are urging the Biden administration to take action in protecting the endangered Gulf of Mexico whale. We hear what they're asking for in order to save the species from extinction. Plus, the new NBA Junior League has officially launched nationwide. We learn what this youth basketball program looks like in Louisiana. But first, last month, New Orleans renters and their allies packed city council chambers. They described living among rats and mold, having their ceilings collapse on them, and worried they'll get evicted if they voice concerns. They were there showing their support for the Healthy Homes Ordinance, a landmark housing proposal that proponents hope will hold landlords accountable. And even though the ordinance seemed to enjoy the support of the council in September, the council has since deferred voting on it twice. Here to tell us more about this proposal and why it stalled is our New Orleans reporter, Carly Berlin. Carly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So first off, tell us what exactly this ordinance would do. Yeah, so the Healthy Homes Ordinance would do a few main things. First off, it would effectively create New Orleans' first citywide rental registry. So basically what that means is every year, landlords would need to pay a fee and certify with the city that their rental units meet a list of basic habitability standards. Then the city would have all of that information in a public-facing database of all rentals across town. Second, it would set those basic standards. So those are things like all rentals would need to have a working smoke detector. There can't be signs of mold or rodent infestations. And there would have to be adequate temperature controls to avoid extreme heat or extreme cold. Uh, And then third, it would set up a way to enforce those standards. So most rentals would be subject to regular proactive inspections to make sure that they meet the mark. Renters would also be able to submit complaints to the city to trigger an inspection, and they would be protected from retaliation like rent increases or threats of eviction from their landlord. That's something advocates say is really, really important because right now, if you're a renter and you speak up about bad conditions in your apartment and then your landlord kicks you out, there's not a whole lot of recourse you can take. Also, if landlords are found in violation and they don't fix things quickly, they could risk being fined and in extreme situations, losing their certificate of compliance and having their power connection shut off. Last thing, which is important, the ordinance also outlines help for renters. They would be able to apply for grants from a new city fund to help them get new housing. You mentioned there's been a lot of support so far. Who's been backing this ordinance? Yeah, so as you can imagine, housing groups have been supporting this, but so have lots of other organizations. Homeowners and neighborhood associations have come out supporting it saying that substandard rental housing is bad, not just for the folks who live in these buildings, but the people who live near them too. Uh, And so have lots of public health groups. The city's health director, actually, Dr. Jennifer Avegno, came to present to the city council about the ordinance last month. She said that rental housing that's, you know, free of mold and other things that can make people sick, like extreme heat, these are really important public health measures. She was also there on behalf of Mayor Cantrell's administration, which is also in support. Uh, And as far as the city council itself goes, Vice President J.P. Morrell introduced the ordinance, and at that initial hearing in late September, other council members seemed to get behind it too. Got it. So it sounds like there is substantial council support. So why is this ordinance stalled? What do we know? 
Yeah, so the council had originally planned to take up the ordinance for a vote in early October, but they've now deferred voting on it twice. This has happened before, actually. The council considered a really similar ordinance five years ago when now Mayor Cantrell and District Attorney Jason Williams were both on the city council. That time, in the face of landlord opposition, the council deferred the Healthy Homes Ordinance for months, and then it eventually just fizzled out. So this time, they're considering some potential amendments. Now, there's a lot we don't know. They haven't discussed these in public at this point. They haven't published any amendments to the original proposal yet, so we don't know a ton about the details. But housing advocates are concerned that the council could carve out a pretty big exception for the landlords of smaller buildings. Now, there's actually a partial exception written into the ordinance already, and this is a little bit confusing, so I'm going to try to break it down. So like I mentioned a little while ago, uh, these regular inspections, some landlords would actually be exempt from those. Like if you own a building that's got four units or fewer on site, and you own it in your own name rather than through a business entity like an LLC, then you wouldn't be regularly inspected. You would still have to register, but you wouldn't be getting those you know, periodic inspections every three years. The idea there, according to the folks at the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center, which helped draft this ordinance, is that you know these are often people who may own a shotgun double and live on one side and then rent out the other so they would have a vested interest in keeping up you know maintaining a rental if they live right there on site what advocates are worried about is an even bigger exception for the owners of all smaller buildings so even ones that are owned by big companies that may own a bunch of houses that they rent out across the city Housing advocates have said that this would actually exempt two-thirds of rental units across New Orleans, so that would be the majority. Last week, the council had been planning to vote on the Healthy Homes Ordinance, but when advocates learned they would be deferring it again, they staged a protest and a press conference at City Hall. Here's Kashana Hill, the executive director of the Fair Housing Action Center, last Thursday. Based on the suggestions of a few landlords who were not courageous enough to state their opposition to this ordinance publicly and on the record, the council is now considering weakening the Healthy Homes Ordinance by giving a free pass to the owners of every single, double, triple, and fourplex in the city. So after that, J.P. Morrell invited the protesters back inside, and he said he was blindsided by their protest. He said he had only found out about their concerns about this carve-out on social media, and that he's been having meetings with both supporters and opponents of the ordinance to make compromises. And he basically challenged the proponents and said if they want an ordinance without compromises, they could find a new champion for it. As it is apparent now that some would prefer a different type of author and process, I want to give those groups the opportunity to find another author who will fit that mold. So where does everything stand now? What are the next steps? So after Thursday's meeting wrapped up, the Fair Housing Action Center put out a statement that they intend to keep working with Morrell. And as of now, the council plans to take up Healthy Homes at its next meeting on November 3rd. Carly Berlin covers New Orleans for WWNO. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Earlier this month, in a letter sent to the Biden administration, more than 100 marine scientists urged government officials to protect the endangered Gulf of Mexico whale, sometimes called the rice whale, from extinction. According to their letter, the Gulf of Mexico whale is the most endangered whale species in the world. And if it ultimately goes extinct, it'll be the first recorded time in history that humans cause the extinction of an entire whale species. To learn more about the Gulf of Mexico whale, why it's endangered, and what we can do to protect it, WRKF's Adam Voss spoke with coastal organizer for Healthy Gulf, Christian Wagley. To start with, can you tell us about this Gulf of Mexico whale, the species? Uh, The letter identifies the whale as a unique part of the Gulf's natural history. Why is that? Yeah, you know, the story of the Gulf of Mexico whale or Rice's whale is really an amazing one. Um, it's it's a whale that we've known has been out in the Gulf for, for many, many decades. But the, really just recently, it's just in the last two years that the whale was fully identified as a distinct, fully distinct species. Now, our organization had already been working on the whale and protecting it when it was believed to be a subspecies of what's called a Brutus whale. Hmm. Um, but what but what happened two years ago is a, a, a big new paper was re, uh, released and published showing that the whale, this whale, is truly a distinct and unique species found nowhere else in the world. And that was um, that was made possible through some genetic work and work uh, looking at the skull morphology of the whale. And that was an opportunity that unfortunately came from a dead uh, Gulf of Mexico whale that washed ashore in South Florida. And that allowed for that work to be done. When you have um, 50 or fewer of an animal left, you you don't get opportunities often to see them or to work on them or certainly to have um, a, a dead one to work from. So that was the good thing that came out of having that. Um, I mean, think about it. This is an animal that almost none of us are ever going to actually see with our own eyes, you know, because you have to go 60 miles offshore. And even then you have to get lucky to see one. And it's certainly fewer than 100. It's believed to be fewer than 50. And it's amazing that, you know, as human beings, that we can care about something so much that we likely are never going to see. So that's 50 whales. I know that humans are are the main cause. Uh, what are some of the other events that led up to, to this? What are the human causes and the other causes? The first one really is the oil and gas drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's a threat for for a couple of different reasons. One is just the amount of noise. Um, as we know, whales need um, they need quiet oceans to be able to communicate with each other for purposes of breeding and foraging for food and all the other things that happen out there. And it's very difficult for them to do that in such a noisy environment where there are, are pipes being laid and explosions for exploratory um, work being done around drilling and all of the vessel traffic. Um, that's a serious threat. There's also the the occasional catastrophic event like the 2010 uh, BP disaster that actually the scientists have estimated killed as much as about 20% of the remaining population of these whales. And another thing is is vessel strikes, and that's vessels that can be serving the oil and gas industry, but it can also be any kind of vessels, shipping traffic or anything else. The whales, um, they obviously breathe air, right? So they have to come to the surface to breathe. And and uh, they also at night, especially they sleep um, within a short, shallow distance or within a short distance of the of the water surface. And they're very vulnerable at that point. And so that is one of the things that's being petitioned for are these restrictions on vessel speeds and the requirement for observers and some other things. Because actually that's the thing that right now is the most immediate, quickest thing that could be done is some of these restrictions on vessels that um, are, we know from worldwide, uh, vessel strike is one of the leading causes of mortality to, to whales. So. We're speaking with Christian Wagley, a coastal organizer with, with the organization Healthy Gulf. We're speaking about the Gulf of Mexico whale, an endangered species. 
So what can you do to help preserve the species? Um, you know, ships still have to travel through the ocean. Yeah, so that's why we, you know, we outlined some very reasonable um, accommodations for the whales that have been done, similar to what's been done for whales like the Atlantic right whale on the, on the Atlantic side. Um, and again, the, there are three distinct things with the with the vessel speed restrictions. One is that in this, and this is only in a in the core area of the Gulf of Mexico whales habitat off of northwest Florida, south toward the Tampa area, and that would be that vessels traversing that area would not go faster than 10, uh, 10 knots. So that allows for a couple of things to happen. It allows for the whales to get out of the way if they are able to see or hear the ship coming. It also allows for an observer on board, which would be another thing we're asking to be required. And that observer could be either an outside person that's brought in, or it could be a member of the crew that's designated to be that observer, um, watching for uh, whales on the surface that would allow the opportunity for the for the vessel to steer um, to steer clear of them. And then that third thing again is that as at night you can't see whales. Um, so the, 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 the idea that the, the vessels would not traverse those areas during, uh, during nighttime. But there's a third one that's not maybe not imminent because it's not out there yet, but it's potentially coming. And that is the introduction of offshore finfish aquaculture to the Gulf of Mexico, which is a very new thing. Um, it has really not been done off the, the continental United States yet at all. And the federal government is working through various processes to, to make that happen. And then the Gulf of Mexico is actually the first place uh, where that process is, is farthest along, where it could happen first. Um, there's a fish farm proposed for off of Pensacola. There's one proposed for off of the Tampa area in Florida. And then zones that would accommodate these off most Gulf states, including Louisiana and Texas. So that's a entirely new threat because whales are, um, they're not used to floating cages and the, and the mooring systems of cables and wires and things that accommodate uh, these offshore fish farms. And it's a very common cause of mortality for whales in other parts of the world is entanglement in this type of fishing gear. So that's another coming threat that's not here yet, but, but could be coming. Are the scientists hopeful that we can learn a little bit more about the Gulf of Mexico whale, to learn more that will help preserve them, to make it so that there's not just 50 individuals of the species left? Yes. So we have great scientists, you know, at the federal level and agencies like the National Marine Fishery Service and also at a lot of our universities. Funding is oftentimes the real limitation. It's very expensive work to go out and work with rice as whales because you do have to go so far offshore, um, a lot of times it's more than you would do in a day trip. You would stay out there for multiple days, and that kind of work um, out in the out in far offshore is is very expensive. Some of the things that they are able to do is there are listening devices out there that listen for the calls of the whales. And there's some interesting. There was a paper just published this summer that actually gives more definitive evidence that the whales do go into the Western Gulf off Louisiana and Texas because they can hear their calls, and those calls match the calls from the whales in the Eastern Gulf. So they are there some. They're not there in the numbers that they are in the eastern Gulf because of all the noise and chaos of the oil and gas drilling, but um, but they are there some, and that's another reason for you know the need for protection Gulf-wide um, as well. Um, another interesting thing about the science side of it and what scientists do is one of the things that they, um, they, they actually do collect samples um, from the, their waste, from their from their feces, basically, you know, when those are in the water and they can see that, they'll they'll collect that and they can do all kinds of analysis of that for potentially what's been eaten. And um, one of the interesting things is that they've actually measured stress hormones in whales and other areas by measuring that in their in their poop. Um, and they were able to determine, for example, this is a very interesting study. After um, I think it was one of the big, it may have been after 9/11 when um, vessel traffic was actually halted for a number of days. And they actually found they already had samples before that from these whales um, 
But during that time when there was no vessel traffic, the ocean was all of a sudden quiet, quieter than it had ever been probably in the lifetime of these whales. And guess what? Their stress hormone levels went down in just a few days time, which was really an amazing thing. And that was made possible because they actually go out and, and scoop up samples of the, of the solid waste from the whales and were able to measure that in there. So, uh, Christian Wagley, coastal organizer with the organization Healthy Gulf. Christian, thank you for joining us on Louisiana Considered. You are so welcome. I really enjoyed the visit. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Basketball season is officially underway, but not just for NBA players. This year, the New Orleans Pelicans have joined seven other NBA and WNBA teams in participating in the inaugural Junior NBA League, which will partner professional basketball teams with local athletic programs for kids. And in Louisiana, the Pelicans are traveling a bit outside of New Orleans to launch this program in the heart of Acadiana. Here to tell us a little bit more about this program is Pelican's Youth Basketball Development Manager, Jason LaPoubel. Jason, thanks for being here. Alana, thanks for having me. Jason, this is the first year of the Junior NBA program, so where did this idea come from, and what will this program offer that makes it stand apart from other youth sports programs? Yeah, so uh, these are, uh, you know, our Junior Pelicans leagues are part of a wider network of Junior NBA leagues, um, which really allowed the youth athlete to develop, you know, fundamental skills and, and learn core values of the game in a, in a, in a fun and inclusive environment. Uh, it, it's really targeted at youth ages 6 to 14, and we're hoping, you know, that this provides a unique experience for kids uh, to, to incentivize them to get back to playing basketball, you know, after COVID and, and, and getting back into their, you know, recreational playgrounds, where, wherever they played basketball before, maybe some, some of them, it's going to be for the first time, um, and which, which we love. Uh, and so uh, we're excited about these leagues coming to Louisiana, and, and we're ready to get it tipped off. Sounds fun. Do you think that partnering with a professional sports team will encourage more kids to come out and play than your typical rec center activity? What's the impact you're hoping to see here in Louisiana? Yeah, I think it's I think it's huge. Um, and, and there's different, uh, you know, there's different league benefits that come from just the overall junior NBA leagues uh, program, which, I, you know, I'm sure we'll get into along with, um, you know, just being attached to our team with the Pelicans and, and what we're doing in Louisiana. Um, so we really want to encourage, you know, all parish rec directors and and different youth basketball organizations around the state to to join us, um, you know, some of those, uh, I guess we can get in some of those benefits right now, but uh, some of those benefits are going to include uh, playing in a, a Pelicans uh, youth jersey uniform. So, uh, so yeah, we, we have that as a sample, but, um, you know, there's been great feedback from uh, rec directors and, and kids who've seen the uniform and got to feel it, um, and, and it's super official, so we're excited about that. Uh, you know, other things we, we have, you know, just for our, our Pelicans market and, 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 you know, those youth players and coaches and, and rec directors who are going to be in our junior Pelicans leagues, 
Um, they're going to get access to discounted tickets. Um, and that's a that's part of a, a program that our group sales team has put together um, specifically for our Junior Pelicans League members. Um, and, and, you know, throughout the season, there's also going to be potential access to, you know, Pelicans giveaways and, and other youth basketball programs and experiences that we already have going on. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, could you tell me a little bit more about like the structure of the program? I, I heard somewhere that the teams might even be named after Pelicans players. I mean, are we going to see like Ingram versus Williamson team? What is that going to look like? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be up to different, uh, you know, the different parish rec directors or, or like, you know, basketball organizations throughout the state, what they name their teams. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, but, but yeah, it, you know, we're really just coming alongside of them, especially from the Pelican standpoint. Uh, you know, we just want to enhance that experience for the youth and, and whatever um, that looks like. Uh, and then, uh, but we really are leaning on the community and, and the, the leaders put in place already in that community um, to, you know, run the leagues how they normally would. Uh, and and uh, hopefully, you know, through this junior NBA league, this junior Pelicans leagues uh, provide some structure that maybe they didn't have before um, to help enhance and, and, like I said, incentivize more youth to come out and play. We are speaking with Pelicans Youth Basketball Development Manager, Jason LaPoubel. Jason, as we mentioned earlier, one of the places this program is going to be taking place is in the heart of Acadiana, Lafayette Parish. I'm wondering why there? Why is this program kicking off in the heart of Cajun country? I think a lot of people might think it makes more sense to keep this in New Orleans. That is, after all, where the Pelicans play. But why branch out into other parts of the state? Definitely. So, I, I mean, you know, like I said, we want this to be a statewide, you know, year one, we want this to be a statewide program because, you know, we believe we're, we're a Louisiana team, we're a Gulf South team, uh, and, and we fully believe that and want that to be the case. So, uh, but but your question about the Acadiana region, I mean, we, we built a great relationship um, with uh, Walter Giller, I'll name him. Um, he's uh, one of the rec directors there in Lafayette Parish. And we just had a, a conversation in the summer and you could just instantly tell his passion uh, for the youth, passion for the game. Um, he's local to Lafayette, kind of a, a community sports hero um, down there. And so uh, instantly, you know, you can just tell that that he's for the kids. And, um, you know, when we mentioned the leagues to him, he was all all about it, all in. Totally. Well, let's let's get into the press conference a bit more. The program is just about to get underway. So far, there was a press conference event where nearly 100 kids participated in a skills clinic. Tell me a little bit more about that. Who was there? What did you see? Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, dur during that week, it was actually a huge week, uh, you know, around the league. It, it was Junior NBA week, which is a celebration of, of youth basketball. Um, you know, around the league. And so so we had, uh, you know, we had a full week of Pelicans activations, um, you know, celebrating youth uh, advocacy and, and, and athletics. And, and and let me tell you, there's some there's some hoopers in Lafayette. Um, there's some youth hoopers. Uh, we saw a lot of skills. Hoopers. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we had the UL team, the, the women's basketball team and coaching staff there. We saw a lot of skills. I think that's really what it is, just showing kids, the youth in our state that um, they matter, that they're they're valued and that, um, you know, we with the Pelicans organization want to support them and all that they do, you know, both on and off the court um, and, and see them thrive. This has been Pelicans Youth Basketball Development Manager, Jason LaPoubel. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. 
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, WWNO's Metro reporter, Carly Berlin, coastal organizer with Healthy Golf, Christian Wagley, and Pelican's youth basketball development manager, Jason LaPoubel. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.